السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا أما بعد فعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد Respects and listeners Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh We gather once again for the study and commentary of the famous hadith of Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu from Sahih al-Bukhari. We've had a break of approximately a month. So allow me to recap. This is a very famous hadith recorded by Imam Bukhari in his Sahih and by many others in their collections of hadith. From the famous companion Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu an, who was an Ansari companion from Medina al-Munawwara. He was a poet and a man of letters. One of the earliest believers from Medina. He actually embraced before the Prophet ﷺ did hijrah to Medina. He was a very close companion of the Messenger of Allah, accompanying him on many of the Prophet ﷺ's journeys and expeditions. In the ninth year of hijrah, the Prophet ﷺ decided to march north in the direction of Byzantine Rome with the intention of launching a preemptive strike against the Byzantine forces and their Arab allies known as the Ghassanids. There were many precursors to this expedition There were many reasons why the Prophet ﷺ decided to embark on this preemptive expedition. It was a matter of urgency, of great gravity and seriousness, so much so that the Prophet ﷺ, contrary to his earlier custom, he actually announced the direction of travel and he made it clear to the companions what his intentions were, which direction he was going to travel in, and what kind of 
enemy and what numbers numbers of forces they he would be facing. All of this was because of the gravity and seriousness of this particular expedition. As a result, he expected, and he considered it an obligation on the believers to accompany him, to accompany him, and that no able-bodied person, no able-bodied man, should remain behind. In fact, this was the a reflection of the verse of the Quran in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says مَا كَانَ لِأَهْلِ الْمَدِينَةِ وَمَنْ حَوْلَهُمْ مِنَ الْأَعْرَابِ أَنْ يَتَخَلَّفُوا عَنْ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ وَلَا يَرْغَبُوا بِأَنفْسِهِمْ عَنْ نَفْسِهِ Allah says it is not permissible, it is not lawful for the people of Medina and for those Bedouin who surround them that they remain behind from the Messenger of Allah. And it is not lawful for them that they give preference to themselves over him. So, Prophet expected the believers to join him, and they did. However, just prior to his departure, the a number of Believers came to him who were genuine and sincere and who who had valid excuses and reasons. They, they sought his permission to take leave and remain behind. Prophet ﷺ granted them permission. Hypocrites also approached him and very sarcastically sought his permission to remain behind. And the Prophet ﷺ gave them permission also, but they were lying to him. The Prophet ﷺ eventually departed. However, upon his departure, some companions, who were very few in number, they failed to join him. Some of them managed to catch up with him a day or two, a few days later. But others, out of weakness and failure to make sufficient preparations and through procrastination they failed to join him. There were approximately ten of them and seven of them they realized their mistake. When the Prophet ﷺ returned they tied themselves to the pillars and they made their repentance very public. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed verses of the Qur'an excusing them and accepting their repentance. There were three companions out of those who were sincere believers and not hypocrites and who weren't given permission to remain behind. Who did not make their repentance and remorse public. But when the Prophet ﷺ returned, unlike the other seven, they didn't fasten themselves to the pillars. But they came to him in person and made their apologies. However, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not immediately accept their repentance. And their matter was deferred. So these were ultimately four groups in this whole expedition and its aftermath. There emerged four groups amongst the people of Medina and the Bedouin who surrounded them. 
They were one, the sincere group of believers, the emigrants and the Ansar, the Muhajirun and the Ansar, who joined the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Allah praised them in the Quran, and I've referred and explained. To, I've referred to those verses and explained them before. The second group was that of the hypocrites. Allah subhanahu wa taala spoke of them and condemned them. Again, I've related the verses and commented on them in detail. The third group was of those seven people who failed to join the Prophet ﷺ, repented, made their apologies, and they made their remorse and their repentance very, their penance very public. Allah, they tied themselves, Allah accepted their repentance and forgave them. And the fourth group was of this, was of these three individuals, who did not tie themselves, who did not make their repentance public, and they were not hypocrites, but they were sincere believers. So when they came and apologized, Allah deferred their repentance and their matter until uh, Allah tested them. This is the story of this final group. And it consisted of three people. Ka'b ibn Malik, radiyallahu an, Murarat ibn radiyallahu an, and Hilal ibn Umayyah, radiyallahu an. They were all sincere believers. The narrator of the story, of his own story, is Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu an. As I said, he was a poet and a man of letters. So Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu an, a poet and a man of letters, he relates this very beautiful and long hadith, which we, whose study we began, and inshallah we will continue today. We reach the section in which Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu explains that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam returned from the journey and he went to make his apologies. Prior to his arrival, Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu became very anxious and he began thinking and planning ahead and actually planning what to say to the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And the thought of lying to the Messenger and making false excuses did cross his mind. Eventually though, he said, as Imam Abu Bakr ibn Abi Shayba relates in his Al-Musannaf, that his, the words of Ka'b ibn Malik were, that I convinced myself and I resolved to speak the truth. For I knew with conviction, la illa sidq, that only the truth will save me. So he went and he told the Prophet wasallam that, O Messenger of Allah, I have no excuse. I was never wealthier and never more able and never healthier than I was, than I am now, and than I was at the time of your departure. Prior to this, I had never seen the day when I had two animals of transport. But I managed to secure two animals at the time of your departure. So, O Messenger of Allah, I have no excuse. And I will not say to you what others have said. Prophet He rose and left. Prophet ﷺ said to those who had gathered 
that as for him, he has spoken the truth. And this was a reference to the others, that in contrast to the others who have lied, he has spoken the truth. Allah Azza wa Jal deferred his matter. When he left, members of his clan accosted him and said to him that, what have you done? Why couldn't you just say what the others have said? So that the Messenger of Allah would have accepted your plea and excuse just as he accepted the plea and excuse of the others. So they remained persistent and they persistently advised him and actually tried to convince him to retract his words. And again, under pressure, Ka'b ibn Malik anhu says that I felt the urge to go back to the Messenger of Allah and belie myself. I.e., the pressure was so immense. And this is what pressure does. Ka'b ibn Malik was not unintelligent. Nor was he weak in speech. Nor was he inarticulate. He was a man of great eloquence. He was able to convince an entire army. He was able to convince entire tribes with his speech. He was a man of forceful poetry. And in fact, this is what his clan said to him. They said, you are a poet. And you are a bold poet. A man of forceful words. He said, I am a poet, but not in falsehood. And I cannot lie. But the point I'm making here is, imagine the pressure. And this is what pressure does. So a man who was as intelligent, as capable, as articulate, as focused, as present-minded, as Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu, who could compose long poems spontaneously and without preparation, impromptu, he wavered. And he became confused to the extent that he said, I actually thought of going back to the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and belying myself, rejecting myself, meaning going to him and telling him, imagine how this would have been, and saying, O Messenger of Allah, what I said to you earlier was a lie, and now I've come back to speak the truth. But... Again, his faith, his sincerity saved him. And he confronted his clan and all of those who were trying to, who were pressuring him to retract his confession and to retract his plea. He confronted them and said to them firmly that I will not commit two sins. I will not commit sin upon sin. In that, one, I was sinful in not joining the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And two, I do not wish to be sinful again by lying to the Messenger of Allah. So he then said to them, Is there anyone else who faces the same dilemma as I do? Is there anyone else who is in the same predicament and position as I am? So his clan informed him that yes, there are two people. 
Murarat ibn Rabi' and Hilal ibn Umayyah radiyallahu anhuma. So when he heard their names, he says, the people mentioned to me two pious men who had both been present in the battle of Badr. So he says, I then realized that in them is a suitable example for me to follow. So this is where we ended. So he says, فَذَكَرُوا لِي رَجْلَيْنِ صَالِحَيْنِ قَدْ شَهِدَا بَدْرًا So they mentioned to me two pious men who had both been present in Badr, in the battle of Badr. فِيهِمَا أُسْوَةٍ In them was an example to follow. They were ones whom I could emulate. As I've mentioned before, the veterans of Badr were considered the elite amongst the Muslims. They always were. And I've mentioned a number of narrations in that regard, so I won't repeat myself. Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu had not been present in the Battle of Badr. But still, he was also younger than both Murarat ibn Rabi' and Hilal ibn Umayyah, who was the youngest of the three. So he said, I could look up to them. And I could follow their example. I.e., why should I go back and lie? But... I have with me Murarat ibn Rabi' and Hilal ibn Umayyah radiyallahu anhumah. They are both pious men. Despite their piety, despite their being amongst the elites of the Muslims, despite their being veterans of Badr, if Allah is testing them in the same way, then I will align myself with them and I will be tested alongside them. And they have spoken the truth and they are willing to bear the consequences of their sincere confession, I will do the same. So I then walked away when they mentioned these two names to me. Murarat ibn Rabi' and Hilal ibn Umayyah Again, they were just like Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu They were sincere believers but had failed to join the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam on this expedition. What were their reasons? Murarat ibn Rabi' radiyallahu he had an orchard. And as I said, this expedition began in the month of Rajab. We are in the month of Rajab now. So in the ninth year of Hijrah. 1426 years ago, in this month, Rasulullah alayhi salatu left Al-Madinat al-Munawwara in the company of over 30,000 companions, radiyallahu anhum, northwards on this expedition, which eventually came to be known as the as Ghazwat Tabuk, the expedition of Tabuk. Murarat ibn al-Rabi'i radiyallahu despite being a sincere Muslim, on this occasion, it was the month of Rajab, but as far as the season was concerned, it was autumn. And this was the peak and prime time for the people of Medina to pluck their fruits, to reap their harvest. So, and what they would normally do is that they would ret- retreat to their orchards and to their fields and actually camp there for a while, in the cool shade, and in water, in running water. So Murarat ibn Rabi'ah, he also had a garden, he also had an orchard, and it blossomed on this occasion. So Murarat ibn Rabi'ah, 
said to himself that, I have always accompanied the Messenger of Allah. So it will do me no harm on this occasion if I remain behind and enjoy my comfort. So Murarat ibn Rabi'i that was his reason. Hilal ibn Umayyah members of his family who had dispersed, coincidentally on this occasion, just prior to the departure of Rasulullah they had all come together. So seeing his family, Hilal ibn Umayyah said that my family has gathered. So when will I get another opportunity like this? So again, if I do not accompany the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam on this occasion and remain behind with my family, then I will do so. So he remained behind because of his family. When eventually the Messenger of Allah departed and they realized their mistake, Murarat ibn Rabi'i radiyallahu anhu had been kept behind by his gardens and orchards. He swore in the name of Allah that he would never return to that wealth again. And he gave it in the way of Allah. Hilal ibn Umayyah also felt immense remorse and great regret that his family kept him behind from the Messenger of Allah wasallam. He also vowed to Allah that he would never see his family again in that same land. And that he would also never return to his wealth. So these were two companions alongside Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu So he says, فَمَضَيْتُ حِينَ ذَكَرُوهُمَا لِي So I went ahead, I went away when they mentioned them to me. وَنَهَا رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ الْمُسْلِمِينَ عَنْ كَلَامِنَا أَيُّهَا الثَّلَاثَةُ مِنْ بَيْنِ مَنْ تَخَلَّفَ عَنْهِ And the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam forbade the Muslims from speaking to us, us three, from amongst those who had remained behind. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Continuing from where we left off before Salah. Ka'bu Malik radiyallahu anhu says that Allah's Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam prohibited the Muslims from speaking to us three, from amongst those who had remained behind from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam those words say a lot Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu says that of all of those people who remain behind according to some narrations there were they were approximately a hundred according to others there were even more And most of them were the hypocrites. And only a handful, approximately ten, were those who were sincere believers and who without just cause remained behind. But the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam did not forbid the Muslims from speaking to any of the hypocrites or any of those who remained behind. Only these three. So you can imagine how they must have felt. And the meaning of not speaking to them was to ostracize them, to isolate them, to excommunicate them. And the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum acted on the 
instructions of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam to the letter with the utmost diligence, as we will learn from the hadith. So he just told them once, no one is to speak to Ka'b ibn Malik and Murarat ibn Rabi' and Hilal ibn Umayyah. So what happened? Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu says, nas. So the people shunned us, or avoided us, nas. the people avoided us. And they changed to us. So much so, that even the earth became unrecognizable in my heart, to my soul. So it is not the earth that I know. It is not the land that I know. And although it's not mentioned here in another narration, meaning another narration of the same hadith, says that people changed so much so that the earth, the land changed to us. Even the Walls changed so that we couldn't recognize the walls, we couldn't recognize the land, we couldn't recognize the walls. And he says in a very beautiful way that the people became fearful. That people became extremely fearful. Fearful of what? Fearful of speaking to us. So much so that they became like Rahban monks. When they would see us, they would become monks. They wouldn't look at us. They wouldn't glance at us, let alone speak to us. It's almost as though they were observing vows of silence, like monks, engrossed in their own affairs and in their own thoughts. The whole world changed, the people changed, the land changed. The walls changed. So we remained in the state for 50 days, for 50 nights. As for my two companions, they lay low, they humbled themselves. And they lay low. And they both sat or remained in their homes weeping. <coughs> Meaning, Murarat ibn Rabi' and Hilal ibn Umayyah they could not bring themselves in the face of such ostracization and excommunication to come out of their homes and to meet people in their feeling of shame and embarrassment and in their grief and pain they humbled themselves they felt low and they lay low and they remained in their homes they wouldn't emerge and what did they do in their homes? they sat weeping profusely and continuously وَأَمَّا أَنَا and as for me, 
فكنت أشب القوم وأجلدهم I was the youngest of the group and the most resilient and the strongest. So I was the youngest of the group and the strongest. Meaning, out of us three, I was the youngest and I was also the most resilient and strongest. He was very bold, remember. He, he was courageous, he was valiant. He was bold in speech, forceful of character. So even in the face of such excommunication and isolation, and such shunning by everybody else, he ventured out into the marketplace, even to the masjid. And he would regularly pray salah in congregation. And as for me, I was the youngest of the group and the strongest. فكنت أخرج. So I would go out. فأشهد الصلاة مع المسلمين. So I would be present in the congregational prayer with the Muslims. وأطوف في الأسواق. And I would roam in the markets. But ولا يكلمني أحد. But no one would speak to me. وَآتِي رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ And I would come to the Messenger of Allah صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ I would approach him. فَأُسَلِّمُ عَلَيْهِ And I would greet him with salam. وَهُوَ فِي مَجْلِسِهِ Whilst he was in his gathering, بَعْدَ الصَّلَاةِ After the prayer. So he would approach the Prophet صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ Whilst he was seated with all the companions. Imagine how bold and courageous he was. There would be a huge congregation and the Prophet ﷺ would be seated there. And he would go. And in front of the whole congregation, fearlessly, but not shamelessly, he would address the Messenger of Allah ﷺ and say to him, Assalamu alaykum ya Rasulullah. And then he would wait. And he says, what would he, what response would he wait for? So he says, I would greet him in his gathering after the prayer. فَأَقُولُ فِي نَفْسِي Then I would say in my heart, هَلْ حَرَّكَ شَفَتَيْ بِرَدِّ السَّلَامِ عَلَيَّ أَمْلَى Did he move his lips in returning my salam or not? ثُمَّ أُصَلِّي قَرِيبًا مِّنْ and before I continue, I'd like to say something. When I say he was bold, indeed he was bold. He was fearless, but he wasn't shameless. Why was he so eager for the Messenger ﷺ to return his salam? Why was he so eager to still go out and venture out in the masjid, in the marketplace? Why did he continue to pray salah in congregation? Why did he still attempt to greet the Messenger ﷺ so publicly in front of the whole congregation? Was it because he merely wished to be restored to grace so that he could win favors? No, Allahu Akbar. He says in another narration of Bukhari, he says, my greatest worry and concern was that I would die and the Messenger of Allah would not perform the funeral prayer over me. Or that the Messenger ﷺ would pass away and I would remain in this condition. And then the Muslims would continue to shun me and even they would not pray Salatul Janazah over me. That was his concern. So he says, 
I would say in my soul, did the Messenger of Allah move his lips in returning my salam or not? Then when he would come to the time of prayer, he would draw close. And I would, then I would pray close to the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, for usariquhum nadar. And then I would steal glances at him. So he would stand as close as possible, and he would steal glances at the Messenger of Allah, for usariquhum nadar. I would steal glances at him. Why only steal glances? Because, as I said, he was bold and fearless, but he was not shameless. The Sahaba radiyallahu anhum were overawed by the majesty of the messenger. And they would not look him in the eye. Nor would they continuously stare at him. But out of bashfulness and modesty before the messenger of Allah, they would only steal glances. فَإِذَا أَقْبَلْتُ عَلَىٰ صَلَاتِي Then when I would turn to my prayer, so I would steal glances at him. Then when I would turn to my prayer, أَقْبَلَ إِلَيَّ This is before salah, out of salah. In fact, it could even mean in salah. So this shows that even in salah, uh, if a person looks around, it doesn't violate one's prayer. In any case, he says, then when I would turn to my prayer, أَقْبَلَ إِلَيَّ the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would look, would turn to me. This is out of salah. So when I would be praying, then the Messenger of Allah would look at me. وَإِذَا الْتَفَتُّ And then when I would turn to him, أَعْرَضَ عَنِّي He would turn away from me. حَتَّى إِذَا طَالَ عَلَيَّ ذَلِكَ مِنْ جَفْوَةِ النَّاسِ Until when this shunning of the people became prolonged for me. Mashayt. I went. Until I climbed the wall of the garden of Abu Qatada. وَهُوَ ibn and he was my, he was the son of my uncle. And the most beloved of all people to me. Abu Qatada al-Aslami radiyallahu was one of his clan. But he wasn't his cousin brother. So he wasn't his real cousin brother. So when he says, he was my the son of my uncle, my paternal uncle. He doesn't mean his blood uncle, he just means one of my clan, because he wasn't his first cousin. But he was two things. One, why did he go to visit Abu Qatada? Why did he go specifically and climb scale the wall of Abu Qatada's walled garden? For two reasons. One, he was one of his clan, but more importantly he says he was most beloved of all people to me. This was his best friend. These two men were best friends. So when he, when, when he felt so pressured, so overwhelmed by the shunning of the people and by being isolated, 
he decided to go to visit one of his own clan and his best friend, Abu Qatadah radiallahu So he went and he scaled the wall of Abu Qatadah's walled garden. And why didn't he go from the front? Why didn't he knock on the door? Because he knew that he would not be granted entry. He knew that he wouldn't speak to him. So he had to somehow get to him in such a manner that he would be able to respond. Or that he would respond. So he scaled the wall of the garden when he knew that Abu Qatada was in the garden. He scaled the wall of the garden and jumped in. And why did he do that? Because he was his best friend. They were like brothers. So he knew that he, although he wouldn't want to speak to him because of the prohibition of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he wouldn't be alarmed by his best friend coming into his property. So he scaled the wall and jumped, he met Abu Qatadah radiallahu So he says, he was my cousin brother and the most beloved of all people to me. فَسَلَّمْتُ عَلَيْهِ so I greeted him with salam. فَوَاللَّهِ مَا رَدَّ عَلَيَّ السَّلَامِ So by Allah, he did not return my salam. فَقُلْتْ So I said, يَا أَبَا قَتَادَةً أَوْ أَبُو بِاللَّهِ I implore you in the name of Allah. هَلْ تَعْلَمُونِي أُحِبُّ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولَهُ Do you not know of me that I love Allah and His Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam? So he remained silent. So I returned. I repeated the question to him. And I again implored him in the name of Allah. So he again remained silent. So I repeated the question to him the third time. And and I implored him in the name of Allah. So on the third occasion, فقال, he said, Allah and his messenger know best. Now, a point here. He didn't say Allah in reply. Because then he would have broken and violated the prohibition of speech. That means he would have responded. And if he was going to respond with Allah Rasuluhu A'lam on the third occasion, he could have done it the first and the second time. And if he was firm enough to not respond on the first and the second occasion, why respond on the third occasion? But the truth is, he didn't respond to Ka'bu ibn Malik. He didn't reply to him. He still never broke and violated the prohibition. He was addressing himself. Abu Qatada was speaking to himself. And he was still ignoring him. So it's like someone trying to catch another person's attention and he refuses to speak to him. When the other person repeats himself again and again, then this person dismissively says, Allahu A'lam, Allah knows best. So the intention isn't to respond. And that, but Abu, Abu Qatada did not respond dismissively. But he addressed himself and said, Allah wa Rasuluhu A'lam, Allah and His Messenger know best. But this wasn't a reply. This is why the ulama say 
that if someone swears in the name of Allah and takes a vow, that I will not speak to that person, and then that person pesters them, and they end up saying, Allahu A'lam, Allah knows best. Have they violated their self-prohibition? Have they broken their vow? Well, it depends on what their intention is. If their intention was to respond, then of course they have. But if their intention was not to respond, and they were merely making an affirmation of faith, and of ascribing knowledge unto Allah, then they have not broken their vow. So, Abu Qatadah did the same. He just said, Allah Rasuluhu A'lam, Allah and His Messenger know best. So, Ka'b ibn Malik says, Fafadat Aynai. My eyes flowed with tears. But the late, subhanAllah, he's a grown up man, a warrior and a poet. Bold, valiant and courageous. But he says, My eyes flowed with tears. And I turned around until I scaled the wall again to leave. He says, And in another narration of the hadith, he says, I couldn't stop myself from crying. I burst into tears and I couldn't stop myself from weeping. So he scaled the wall and left. He says, فَبَيْنَ أَنَا أَمْشِي بِسُوقِ الْمَدِينَةِ So whilst I was walking in the market's place of Medina, إِذَا نَبَطِيٌّ مِنْ أَنْبَاطِ الشَّامِ when there appeared a Nabataean from the Nabataeans of Sham, Mimman Qadima bit Ta'am, who had brought food, Yabiruhu bil Medina, selling it in Medina. I've explained Nabati before in, again, my commentary of Sahih al-Bukhari. The Nabatis, and the plural is Ambat, and that's what he says, Nabatiyum min Ambat al-Sham, one of the Nabateans of the Nabateans of Sham. Who were the Nabateans? The Nabateans were people of an ancient civilization. They... Theirs was a great culture and civilization, and the desert cities of Petra, etc., which uh, is a tourist destination today. Petra is a tourist destination. We have these huge carved-out palaces and structures in the middle of the Jordanian desert. Petra, and there there were also other areas, other desert cities... These desert cities were occupied by people, by people of the Nabataean civilization. Eventually the civilization died out, but the, these were the remnants of those people. And they remained scattered uh, throughout northern Arabia, in, and eventually they were to be found in two areas. And the Arabs would differentiate between them, and which two areas were there? They were to be found in Iraq and in Sham. 
So the Arabs would normally say, Ambatul Iraq, Ambatul Sham. So these were the Nabataeans of Iraq, or these were the Nabataeans of Sham. And these were people with a history of agriculture. Because these were, remember, even Petra. It's a desert city, but it blossomed. And they had very sophisticated uh, irrigation systems and canals and methods of making the desert blossom and bloom. So they were a settled people. And the Arabs normally differentiated between the Nabataeans and themselves. So they regarded themselves as being nomads. And they regarded the Nabataeans as being sedentary people. And being nomads, they weren't farmers. So, but the Nabataeans, being settled people with lands and pastures and irrigation and farming, and with a, with a long history and great expertise of agriculture. So they were regarded as being agriculturists. This is why in uh, a number of Arabic works, the Nabataeans are referred to as farmers. But it's not as simple as saying they were just farmers, that the word Nabataean means a farmer. It doesn't just mean a farmer. Because of their history, this is why uh, these sedentary people, the remnants of the Nabataean civilization who had great, a great history and expertise of agriculture and farming, they were referred to as farmers. In any case, Ka'b ibn Malik says, one of these Nabataeans from the area of Sham, he had come from Sham, northern Arabia, to Medina, bringing food, grain, selling grain and food in the marketplace of Medina. And since he had come as a traveller from Sham, from northern Arabia, he had also brought a message. And what was that message? So he says, so whilst I was walking in the marketplace of Medina, all of a sudden I saw a Nabataean from the Nabataeans of Sham, who had brought food, food meaning grain, selling it in Medina. He was saying, he was shouting out in the marketplace, who will guide me to Ka'b ibn Malik? So the people began pointing to me. Even that shows something. He says, they wouldn't say, there's Ka'b ibn Malik. They refused to speak even to the Nabataean about me. So when he was asking, who can show me where I can find Ka'b ibn Malik, people began simply pointing to me without uttering a word. So people began pointing to me. يشيرون له, pointing to me for him. حتى إذا جاءني, until when he came to me, دفع إلي كتاب من ملك غسان. He gave me a letter from the king of غسان. As I've mentioned numerous times. غسان is the Arabic term for the غسانيز. Well, the غسانيز is the English term from غسان. Banu Ghassan was a huge tribe which occupied the north, northern region of Arabia. And they were a powerful <coughs> warrior tribe. 
they were the vassals of the Byzantine Romans. And the Byzantine Romans used them as auxiliary forces in their war against Persia. So the Sasanian Persian Empire and the Byzantine Roman Empire were at loggerheads and entangled in warfare, in a war that lasted centuries, generations. And throughout this period of warfare, the Byzantine Romans used the Ghassanid Arabs as their vassals and allies, and as their auxiliary forces. And the Persians, Sasanid Persians, they normally used the Lakhmids, the Banu Lakhm, who were an equally powerful tribe of the northeast and the east of Arabia. Both of these tribes acted as a buffer zone between these two great empires and the wild nomadic Arabs of central and southern Arabia, as they regarded them wild. These were very powerful, wealthy, rich Arab tribes. They were unlike the southern or central Arabian tribes. They had, they were, they had, they were armed to the teeth. They had palaces. They even had architecture. So they were a civilization unto themselves, the Ghassanids. And their kings lived in great wealth, luxury, and opulence. And the Byzantine Romans didn't treat them as inferiors. Well, they did. They always maintained that sense of superiority. But they did not mistreat them. But they regarded them for what they were, powerful and warrior-like nomadic tribes. So they regarded them quite highly. As a result, the Byzantine emperors actually gave them permission to call themselves kings, and they even gave them titles of kings in their own right. The reason I mention this is as an introduction to what Ka'b ibn Malik says later. So we're not just talking about some humble Arabian tribe known as the Banu Ghassan. The Banu Ghassan were a civilization unto themselves. Even today they are discovering palaces and architecture of the Banu Ghassan, which shows that these were a people who lived in great wealth, luxury and opulence. They had palaces and courts. They had uh, a huge system of control, since ultimately they were the allies and the vassals of the Byzantine Romans. Their king, who was known as Jabalah, Jabalat ibn al-Ayham, one of their last, in fact he was their last emperor, he was their last king, the last king of Ghassan. So Jabalat ibn al-Ayham was the king of Ghassan at the time of Ka'b ibn Malik radiallahu anhu relating this hadith. So he says, Hatta ja'ani until this Nabataean came to me, he pushed a letter to me from the king of Ghassan. And who was the king of Ghassan? Jabal ibn al-Ayham. And remember, the Banu Ghassan, the Ghassanids, were one of those people that the Prophet wasallam had actually marched against in the campaign of Tabuk in order to face them in battle. But he never went beyond the area of Tabuk. So Ka'b ibn Malik is receiving a letter 
from the king of Banu Ghassan, the Ghassanids, a man of great wealth, power, and influence, and someone whose spies had informed him. They had spies in Medina. Someone whose spies had informed him of the ostracization and the excommunication of Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu Muradat ibn Rabi'i and Hilal ibn Umayyah. So he actually sent him a letter. And in one narration, the letter wasn't just a scrap. The letter was wrapped in pure silk. The letter was wrapped in pure silk. So this Nabataean from Sham gave Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu a letter wrapped in pure silk, pure white silk, from the king of Ghassan. So Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu unfolded it and read its contents. And he says, فَإِذَا فِي So this is what was contained therein. This is a letter from the king of Ghassan. أَمَّا بَعْد As for what follows. Meaning, as for what follows, the greeting. فَإِنَّهُ قَدْ بَلَغَنِي Indeed, it has reached me. أَنَّ صَاحِبَكَ قَدْ جَفَاكَ That your companion, meaning the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, قَدْ جَفَاكَ He has shunned you. وَلَمْ يَجْعَلْكَ اللَّهُ بِدَارِ هَوَانِ وَلَا مَضْيَعَةِ And Allah has not placed you, God, because obviously he wasn't a Muslim, Allah meaning God, and God has not placed you in a land of disgrace or loss. فَالْحَقْ So come, join us. Nawasik. We will entertain you. And in one narration, with our wealth. Nawasik means not just entertain. Nawasik means we will join you. We will entertain you. We will accommodate you. We will share our wealth with you. So فَالْحَقْ Come join us. Nawasik. We will accommodate you. فَقُلْتُ لَمَّا قَرَأْتُهَا So I said, when I read it. Now imagine the mental and emotional state of Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu These are the thoughts that are going through his mind, or that would go through his mind. Muhammad ibn Abdullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam was in Mecca. He was hounded and persecuted by the Quraysh. And he claimed to be a prophet. So we, the people of Medina, when we traveled to Hajj, we offered our support. In spite of the Quraysh, we risked our families, our lives, our welfare, and our city of Medina. We risked the wrath and the rage of the Quraysh against us by aligning ourselves with Muhammad ibn Abdullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and giving him shelter and protection and by joining him. We made an enemy of the city-state of Mecca. We did it. We believed in him, we embraced him, we pledged our support to him. And he came to Medina. 
I, I embraced Islam even before he came to Medina. I joined him in battles. From the battle of Uhud, I joined him. I was the one who convinced members of the Muslim army to remain steadfast. When Abu Sufyan and others tried to draw a wedge, drive a wedge between us, I was the one who lampooned and satirized the enemy in my poetry, impromptu, spontaneously on the battlefield of Uhud. I bled in the battle of Uhud. I was injured. I was carried away from the battle. My own close family and friends feared for my life because of the injuries I sustained in the battle of Uhud. I stood side by side with the messenger, with Muhammad ibn Abdullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, with the messenger of Allah. I fought with him, I marched with him, I bled with him. And now, because of one error, this is a punishment I suffer. I failed to join him on one expedition, even though I had proven myself on all the previous occasions. And I went and I humbled myself and I greeted him and I apologized and I confessed to my failure. I did not lie and I spoke the truth. And this is the punishment. I am cut off. I am isolated, excommunicated, ostracized by the entire community. I walk the marketplace, I roam in the city of Medina. And people turn away from me. I go to the masjid. And the entire congregation turns away from me. I greet the messenger of Allah with salam. And he refuses to return my salam. He does not look me in the eye. And I cannot look at him in the eye. The land has changed. The people have changed. The walls have changed. I do not recognize my family, my friends, my people. Even my best friend refuses to speak to me. My own clan members refuse to speak to me. Is this the life I have to lead? And now, lo and behold, maybe here is some light. Here is some deliverance. Here I have received a letter. And not just a scrap, but a scroll with the royal seal from the king of Ghassan, wrapped in silk as a gift to me, calling me. And telling me that, O oh Ka'ab, we have learned that your companion Muhammad ibn Abdullah has shunned you and ostracized you. And God has not placed you in a land of disgrace and loss. I.e., you do not have to suffer a loss. You do not have to be disgraced in this manner. Come to us. We will elevate your rank. We will share our wealth with you. We will entertain you. We will accommodate you. So maybe this is my hope, this is my deliverance. And a letter wrapped in silk from none other than the king of Ghassan, Jabalat ibn al-Ayham. Maybe that's what he would have, could have thought. But no, this is us thinking. That was Ka'b ibn Malik radiallahu anhu. He was a companion of the messenger of Allah. He was touched by the messenger of Allah. And what did he say? He says... فَقُلْتُ لَمَّا قَرَأْتُهَا So I said when I read this letter, 
And this is also a test. This is also a test. So I took the letter to a furnace that was burning. And I burnt it in the furnace. حتى إذا سبحان الله كعب بن مالك رضي الله عنه. Remember he was a poet, and poets had a history of poets were people who were seen as those whose tongue was for hire. They could satirize people at whim, lampoon people at whim. They could eulogize people. At whim. These were wordsmiths. These were powerful poets. People of eloquence and articulacy. Those who could make or break reputations with their tongues. They were a potent force. But they were also known to be wavering and scrupulous. Men of the royal court. Whose tongues were for hire to the highest bidder and payer. So... If one king, this is what people would do. This is what poets were known to do. They would go to royal courts from one court to the other. And there they would sing praises of even tyrant kings. And the tyrant kings, or those who were eulogized and praised, would shower them with gifts and wealth. That's how poets always became wealthy. It was rare that a poet was not wealthy, because he earned his wealth through his tongue. And his tongue was for hire. If, if you wanted him to eulogize someone, he'd do it. If you wanted him to satirize someone, he would do it. Ka'ab ibn Malik was a poet also. But he was a believer in the Messenger of Allah. And as a poet, he could have gone to the royal court of Jabal ibn al-Ayhan. And he could have sang his praises. He received a letter wrapped in silk. But no, subhanAllah. What Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu did, and Allah says that in the Qur'an, that about poets, وَالشُّعَرَاءُ يَتَّبِعُهُمُ الْغَاوُونَ أَلَمْ تَرَ أَنَّهُمْ فِي كُلِّ وَادٍ يَهِيمُونَ وَأَنَّهُمْ يَقُولُونَ مَا لَا يَفْعَلُونَ That the poets, the wayward follow them. Do you not see that they wander aimlessly in every valley and that they say that which they do not do? So Allah describes the shu'ara of the days during the time of the Prophet Allah describes poets of that period. Ka'b ibn Malik was a poet, but he was not a poet of that cloth and category. He was a, mess- he was a believer in the Messenger of Allah And subhanAllah, you know this thing which he did, what did he do with the letter? He read the letter and he said, this is a test also. And what did he do? Did he rip it up? No, he didn't rip it up. He took it and he found a furnace and he cast the whole letter into the furnace and he burnt it. And speaking of fire, this reminds me of a beautiful hadith. And that describes what Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu did. Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim rahmatullahi both relate hadith in their sahih. From Anas ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu, who says, ثَلَاثٌ مَنْ كُنَّ فِيهِ 
وَجَدْ بِهِنَّ حَلَاوَةَ الْإِيمَانِ This is the wording of Sahih Muslim. ثَلَاثٌ مَنْ كُنَّ فِيهِ وَجَدْ بِهِنَّ حَلَاوَةَ الْإِيمَانِ Three things which he found in a person through them he shall taste the sweetness of faith of Iman. Man kana Allahu wa Rasuluhu ahabbi ilayhi mimma siwahuma. One to whom Allah and His Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam are more beloved than anything and anyone else besides them. Two. وَمَنْ يُحِبُّ الْمَرْءَ لَا يُحِبُّهُ إِلَّا لِلَّهِ And a man who loves another man, he does not love him except for the sake of Allah. And number three, وَمَنْ يَكْرَهُ أَنْ يَعُودَ فِي الْكُفْرِ And in one narration, إِلَى الْكُفْرِ بَعْدَ أَنْ أَنْقَذَهُ اللَّهُ مِنْهِ كَمَا يَكْرَهُ أَنْ يُقْذَفَ فِي النَّارِ And the third person is one who detests returning to disbelief after Allah has saved him from it as much as he detests and fears and dislikes being flung into the fire. These three things if found in a person, he shall taste the sweetness of Iman. So Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu an, after Allah had gave him Iman, he resented and he feared being flung into the fire, being, returning to disbelief as much as he feared being flung into the fire. And rather than allowing himself to be burnt in the fire of Jahannam in the afterlife, he burnt the invitation to disbelief in a fire of this world. And what an invitation. Anyone who would have been in that position would have wavered, would have fled in the first instant. In fact, according to some narrators, who was this invitation from? This invitation was from Jabalat ibn al-Ayham. Jabalat ibn al-Ayham was the king of Ghassan. And according to some narrations, what happened is that he remained the king of the Ghassanids, and he was the last king. When the Muslims conquered that entire region of Sham, when he realized that the Muslims were about to conquer the whole region and overwhelm them, he sent a letter to Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu This was the king of the Ghassanids, the same Jabal ibn al-Ayham. He sent a letter to Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu requesting permission to come and meet him and to surrender and submit. So Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu anhu granted him permission. Jabalat ibn al-Ayham, this king of the Ghassanids, went to Sayyidina Umar radiyallahu and surrendered. And he also said to him, I wish to embrace Islam. So he embraced. Then Sayyidina Umar radiyallahu took him to Mecca with him for pilgrimage. 
So when he took him for pilgrimage, whilst he was doing tawaf, Jabalat ibn al-Ayham, someone tripped on his lower cloth and bumped into him. So Jabalat ibn al-Ayham hit him until he injured him on his nose. So that man went to Sayyidina Umar radiallahu and said to him that Jabalat ibn al-Ayham, I tripped and I bumped into him. And in nothing, he wasn't injured, but in his anger and in his fury, he, sl- he hit me and he injured me. So Sayyidina Umar radiallahu summoned Jabalat ibn al-Ayham. When he summoned him, he said to him, Oh Jabalah, you hit him. So Jabalat ibn al-Ayham actually said, Yes, he tripped and he bumped into me. So in my anger, I hit him. So Sayyidina Umar radiallahu says, Well, now that you have confessed, I will pronounce judgment between you. He will hit you just as you hit him and injure you to the same degree. So Jibrat ibn al-Ayham said, How can that be? I am the king of the Ghassanids. And he is a commoner from the market. So Sayyidina Umar anhu said, O Jibbalah, Islam has made both of you equal. So Jibrat ibn al-Ayham remonstrated with Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu anhu. And Sayyidina Umar and deferred the matter till the next day, the punishment. That night, Jabalat ibn al-Ayham fled Mecca to the north. And then he actually renounced Islam and went to live in Byzantine Rome. And he died there as a non-Muslim. So he actually renounces Islam. This is what arrogance can do. So this was the same Jabalat ibn al-Ayhan who invited Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu. Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu said, this is a test also. And rather than allow himself to be burnt in the fire of Jahannam in the Akhirah, he burnt the letter of invitation. Anybody who could have been in that position. Subhanallah, Jabalah, he renounced his Islam because he felt slighted and he was indignant that I should be hit like a commoner, and I should be treated like a commoner, and I be made equal like a commoner. That thought and that feeling alone led him to, led his led to his disillusionment, so much so that he renounced Islam. But when he invited Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu an, all that Ka'b radiyallahu an had been through. The ostracization, the excommunication, the isolation, the shunning, all of that collectively was still not enough for him to respond to an invitation. And in fact, it's mentioned in another narration that he went to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and he said to himself, Inna lillah, even the people of paganism 
have now taken an interest in me. He then went to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and complained to the Messenger of Allah. And he said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, you're shunning me and you're excommunicating me has led to this, that even the people of paganism are now showing interest in me. But he said, even this was a test. He then says, حَتَّى إِذَا مَضَتْ أَرْبَعُونَ لَيْلَةً مِنَ الْخَمْسِينَ Before I continue, I'd like to mention something. They were excommunicated. No one was allowed to speak to them. But here, there's a question. We know that in Islam it's not permissible to shun and avoid another Muslim for more than three days. In a hadith later by Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim, in their sahih, Abu Ayyub al-Ansari relates that the Prophet said, لا يحل لرجل أن يهجر أخاه فوق ثلاث ليال it is not lawful for any man to shun and to avoid his brother for more than three nights, meaning three days. <laughs> In such a manner that they both meet. So he, this one turns away and that one turns away. And the best of the two is the one who is the, who is the first to begin with salah. The one who suppresses his anger and swallows his pride. He is the better of the two. So it is not permissible for a Muslim to shun and to avoid his fellow Muslim for more than three days. And this is not a small thing. So it's not a question of he shouldn't do it. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam says, La It is not halal, it is not lawful, it is not permissible for a man to shun and avoid his brother for more than three days. And in another hadith, related by Imam Tabarani rahmatullahi alayhi, and it's an authentic hadith, Fadalat ibn Ubayd radiyallahu anhu relates that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, مَنْ هَجَرَ أَخَاهُ فَوْقَ ثَلَاثِ مَنْ هَجَرَ أَخَاهُ فَوْقَ ثَلَاثِ Whoever shuns and avoids his brother for more than three days, فَهُوَ فِي النَّارِ Then he is in the fire. إِلَّا أَنْ يَتَدَارَكَهُ اللَّهُ بِكَرَمِهِ Unless Allah saves him through his grace. And in another hadith later by Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal in his Musnad, and Imam Abu Dawood in his Sunan, and Imam Al-Hakim in his Al-Mustadrak. Abu Khirash, al-Sunami radiyallahu anhu, relates that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, مَنْ هَجَرَ أَخَاهُ سَنَةً فَهُوَ كَسَفْكِ دَمِهِ Whoever shuns his brother for a year, then this is equivalent to shedding his blood. And again, the hadith is authentic. Whoever shuns his brother for a year, then this is equivalent to shedding his blood. So when the warnings are so severe, how was it that the Sahaba radiallahu anhum shunned 
these three for 50 days and nights. Well, there's a difference. This was to do with religion. And not for personal reasons. And allow me to explain something about that. We may also feel at times that I am shunning this individual. And I'm refusing to return his salam or to give him salam. And I refuse to speak to him or to respond to him or to have anything to do with him for religious reasons. And I'm justified in doing so. But this can be very misleading. Why? For what reason, on what basis? If a person is committing a sin privately and their personal life is one of sin and iniquity and corruption but they are not harming anyone else i.e. it's their personal weakness and who doesn't sin? How can we justify shunning them and avoiding them and refusing to greet them? they themselves are remorseful and humble and simple. And that happens. Who is not sinful? If we began judging everybody, then we would end up in such a state that no one would greet the other. No one would greet the other. No one would be worthy of greeting the other. And if it's not to do with sin and personal behavior, but it's to do with ideology or creed and belief, And this is a common problem. He doesn't share the same belief as I do. He doesn't believe in the same articles of faith. He doesn't share my opinion. He does not follow my ideology. He does not share my ideology. So I won't give him salam and he won't give me salam. I won't greet him and I won't return his greeting. Who decides who is right? What? Secondly, who decides what are these points of difference on which it's lawful and permissible for people to shun one another? If it's simply a matter of difference of opinion, then subhanallah, Who doesn't disagree with the other? As I keep on saying, an individual doesn't agree with himself or with herself. One changes one's opinion over and over again. Even the greatest of imams didn't agree with each other. And someone may argue, well, this is only to do with fiqh. No. Even with many different issues that are fundamental to matters of faith, such as the concept of Jannah and Jahannam. I won't go into the details, but I'll just mention a few references. Even in things related to Jahannam, things related to the fire, things related to the hereafter, you will find differences of opinion amongst famous scholars, classical scholars of the past. And this is why some people have been placed in very embarrassing positions. 
Initially, they would rally against any difference of opinion when evidences are submitted to prove that each group of people who differ in some way are acting on their evidences from the Qur'an and the Hadith and from the practice of the companions عنهم, And when it was shown that differences of opinion have always existed and are valid and will remain so and have been accepted and overlooked by the scholars of the Ummah throughout history and that people will differ in many issues. One of the ulama writes that just from the moment of saying Allahu Akbar in salah till the moment of saying Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah at the end of salah between takbiratul tahrima Allahu Akbar at the beginning and between taslim Assalamu alaykum at the end there are approximately or oh, there are over 200 masail of salah in which the ulama differ that's just between Allahu Akbar and Assalamu Alaikum. 200. And I keep on saying about Adhan, if you want to understand the differences of opinion, just look at Adhan. With every other issue, there is a possibility that people could not have seen. But when it came to Adhan, over 10 years, the Adhan began after Hijrah. Over 10 years, Adhan was given five times a day. Make that calculation, we come up to approximately 18,000 Adhan. True? Approximately 18,000 of that. Allah forgive me if the calculation is wrong, but 10 years, well, 5 of them, 354 days a year because of the Hijri year. And times that, well, even more actually. Time, well, yeah, times that by just over 10 years. That's how many Adhan we have. And is Adhan something to be seen? Or is it just something to be heard? How the Prophet ﷺ exactly prayed, what he did at the front of the masjid, how many people could have seen that and witnessed during the salah? And he would normally arrive before the salah and leave after the salah. He would pray his nafl and sunan and voluntary prayers, non-farad prayers at home. But when it came to adhan, Everyone heard the Adhan. Those who were praying, those who weren't praying, those who were in the masjid, the men, the women, the children, those in the marketplace, five times a day. Just like today, non-Muslims in Muslim countries know the words of Adhan. Non-Muslims then knew the words of Adhan. And yet, I've mentioned many times before, and the same with Iqama. Despite one consistent adhan which is heard by everybody in so many different masjids, especially in the masjid of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, approximately 18,000, and yet the ulama of the four schools of fiqh, and even the others cannot agree on the wording of adhan. So if adhan has not been spared, in which other mas'alah, are you always going to find a consensus of opinion in which a difference of opinion cannot be tolerated, especially if it's founded on sound evidences from the Qur'an and the Hadith and the tradition of Islam and the practice of the early companion, the companions and the early early Muslims, radiyallahu anhum.
So when some people are presented with this, and they eventually concede that yes, maybe in matters of fiqh and prayer and pilgrimage, there can be difference of opinion, but not in other matters, more fundamental. Do not misunderstand me, that's why I'm not going to give any specific examples. But this is another more complex issue. But when, they, when evidences are shown that some of the classical scholars even differed about certain other matters, beyond just prayer and pilgrimage and fiqh, then because they respect both groups of scholars, the same individuals who hitherto were scathing in their criticism of any difference of opinion, even in fiqh, now say, well, uh, they are both right, and inshallah they will both be rewarded. So subhanallah, why is it halal for you to hold differences of opinion, and to accept differences of opinion amongst scholars that you regard highly, but it's haram for everybody else? And we could look at many Masa'il and the greatest of scholars have differed and have erred even in the most critical of issues. So who decides? If, if we all start shunning each other and isolating and ostracizing each other merely on matters of opinion, merely on differences of opinion, then again we will end up in such a state that nobody is greeting the other. We have been told, greet those whom you know and even those you do not know. So if you don't know someone and you've been told to greet them, how do you know what their state is, what their belief is, what their ideology is? So why was it different here? Why was it okay here? Well, this was Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, who as a messenger of Allah and the recipient of revelation and the leader of the Muslim community, he made a pronouncement and he as a messenger of Allah said no one is to talk to them. For them it was different. Until when 40 nights had passed from the 50, then something else happened. I'll end here. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enable us to understand. May Allah make us amongst those who appreciate the words of Allah and His Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala abdihi wa rasulihi nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik nashadu wa la ilaha illa ant. Astaghfiruka wa ratubu ilayk. This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadhul Haq and has been brought to you by Al-Kotha Productions. For additional lectures and products, please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on 0044-121-771-3777 or by email via sales at akstore.com. Produced under license by Alcotha Productions, all rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author. Any unauthorized distribution, broadcasting or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright.